Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. This is the Interpreter Radio Show. The Interpreter Foundation exists to encourage study of the gospel and faithfulness to the church by making the latest scholarship available in its journal, publishing books, holding seminars, creating films, and by providing roundtable discussions of the scriptures. You can find us at interpreterfoundation.org where you can find all of our materials, including these radio shows, which are posted as podcasts. You can also subscribe to the show on iTunes or through any of the other podcast apps on Apple and Android devices. If you like this show, tell your friends about us and write a review on iTunes or on your favorite site for podcast apps. I'm Steve Densley, and tonight I'm joined in the studio by co-host Don Bradley. Hey there, Steve. Hello, Don. And uh, if I did this right, we should have our uh, special guest joining us on the phone. Is uh, Nathan, is that you? Uh, yeah, can you hear me? Yep, I can hear you just fine. Nathan Arp graduated from Brigham Young University with a bachelor's in Chinese language and literature. And as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Nathan's been enamored by the church's scriptures for decades. He's been a longtime consumer of scholarly publications about the scriptures and is grateful for this opportunity to participate in the process of production. Uh, Nathan published our most recent article in the Interpreter Foundation's journal. It's entitled, An Analysis of Mormon's Narrative <coughs> Strategies Employed on the Xenophyte Narrative and Their Effect on Limhi. Uh, Nathan, yeah, I, I think this is the third time I've had you on um, to, to uh, talk about one of your articles. You're about to the point where I should just make you a honorary co-host. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was I was just going through some of my my uh, old shows. And I noticed that uh, I've been lucky enough to have you on. Uh, I always try to have one of the authors on from the most recent uh, article. You've published. Um, is this your fourth or fifth article in the Interpreter's Journal? Uh, it's my fourth. Your fourth. Okay. Well, I think that I think I've had you on at least three of those times. And uh, it's always been great. We've, we've been excited to have you back on. You've been doing a lot of work uh, related to the narrative structure of the Book of Mormon. Uh, it's it's a, uh, a, a fascinating approach in that it's, it's unique. Uh, you know, sometimes we, uh, you know, see a, maybe a, a textual analysis that Matthew Bowen does quite often. Um, you know, sometimes we'll see some uh, maybe some some hints of um, you know Mesoamerican uh, influence or uh, you know chiasmus those kinds of things. Uh, so it's it's fun that you are are taking an approach that is uh, it's not not something that everybody's doing, and you're finding some really interesting things. I know that Don Bradley is excited to talk with you about this article this evening. Um, Dan, what did you think about this article? Um, yeah, hey there, Nathan. Yeah, we just talked um, two months ago, I believe, about a previous article that you did. Um, so yeah, hi. 
Yeah, so the co-host idea is, I think, making more and more sense here, you know. Um, so yeah, thank you for this article. And you, again, here in this article, you are doing a really close analysis of narrative and looking at, you know, what is it that um, the author is trying to put across through the narrative and how is the author working with his materials to structure the story in a way that puts across certain meanings and what is that uh, narrative, what is his way of working with the narrative tell us about the narrative, but what does it tell us also about him? And so um, the, uh, the title here is, uh, of course, an analysis of Mormon's narrative strategies employed on the Xenophyte narrative and their effect on Limhi. And so uh, to start out, why don't you tell us more about uh, what you mean here by narrative strategies and where that, where that concept comes from and how it applies here in the Book of Mormon. Yeah, sure. Um, and hello again. Thanks for letting me be on here. Um, this, this has been so exciting for me. Um, the, the idea with, with narrative strategies um, comes primarily from some Bible studies that have been done by people like Miles. Meyer Sternberg and Robert Alter, and these were made known to me through Grant Hardy's um, wonderful books, um, Understanding the Book of Mormon. And, um, <clears throat> and basically, it's just trying to figure out um, how Mormon is trying to present the narratives. I think most of my life as a reader of the Book of Mormon, um, I've been looking for things in... Uh, application to my spiritual life, right? A theological approach. And, and this is more of looking at um, authorial intent. Right. So Mormons are, you know, Mormons presenting this, maybe why is he doing that? And how is he doing that? Um, and what that means for the narrative. Um, and it can also, you know, uh, or at least I have found very, very frequently that it it also comes back to the theological issues that I'm used to using when I when I to read the Book of Mormon. Sure. Yeah. So you know, um, something here that might be. I mean, I think people who are regular readers of Interpreter would have, of course, encountered this any number of times. But it's something that still might be new to a number of Latter Day Saints, and even relatively new to some readers is this approach of really looking at what the author is trying to do through the narrative because when we're dealing with scriptural narratives that, well, when we're dealing with scriptural narratives, right? So when we're dealing with like history being told, um, I think the general assumption that we would have maybe particularly with scripture is well, they're just telling exactly what happened. And so the uh, author becomes kind of invisible in that process or, or maybe may, might even seem to be irrelevant to that process because if they're just telling what happened, then um, the author doesn't have to have an intent, right? Because the author is supposedly oh, yeah. just reporting. It's just like reportage of events. Well, there were these events, A, B, C, D, E, F, and so you just he just tells A, B, C, D, E, F, right? When actually, uh, when we look closely at the Book of Mormon, and, and uh, of course, that narrative generally, narrative is always a kind of selection, and it's always given a deliberate structure. Uh, the, the actual spread of events in any context 
is actually so much larger than anyone can fully relate. Uh, and so there's always this selection. And then, you know, uh, you do need a structure. And in this case, as you note in the article, the Book of Mosiah is not arranged according to an ordinary chronological structure. And so, you know, then the question arises, well, why? <laughs> you know, why, does, why is yeah. the author narrating things out of order? What, what are they trying to do through that? So um, just like this, this kind of approach very much resonates with me. I think I mentioned in our last uh, conversation a couple months ago about the, your previous article that um, thoughts about this kind of issue were actually what led me to write my book on what we can know about what was in the last 116 pages of the Book of Mormon because I started realizing by looking at the Book of Mormon narrative that we have that there was a lot of careful crafting going on, that there were, um, the author was alluding back to earlier events and really laying things out in a way that was intended to convey certain meanings that maybe ordinarily we miss because we don't read closely enough. And so that, um, I, I was sort of chaining back the uh, places where the narrator was referring kind of subtly alluding back to earlier parts of his narrative. And I, then I realized with kind of horror that, you know, once we get back to a certain point, we're missing the original narrative. Right? We don't have Mormon's voice <laughs> narrating the first 450 years of Nephite history. And so that was what, then what led me to try to figure out more of what was in the Lost Pages so we could understand that better. So I am very deeply in sympathy with the kind of approach that you're taking here and looking really at the deep, deep, deep complexities of the text. Yeah, and I, I think a, an example from, from this particular paper um, is, is Limhi, the way Mormon presents Limhi. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there's this, right at the beginning, right, um, he's, we encounter the, the Xenophyte people, and it's out of order. We're not... Um, going from the time that Zenith, you know, founded, you know, the, their, their little area, um, we're coming from his grandson, who's looking back at his own history and reflecting on this. Right. And what was really interesting for, for me as well, as, as far as the way Mormon couched, uh, this, this part is that he tells us on the onset, right? Hey, um, there's a lot of things that Limhi said, but I have chosen this specifically. And because Mormon starts it off in such an abrupt way like that, it really um, is a sign for us as readers to say, hey, mm. why is he doing that? Mm. He doesn't always do that, right? And so then you look at, as I started looking closer at Limhi's remarks and then comparing it with what happens later, mm -hmm. you know, the way Mormon abridges the account, I noticed there were some differences between Limhi's perspective mm. of what happened and what Mormon later presents to the reader. Mm -hmm. And that, that kind of took off um, um, uh, the analysis, right? That kicked off the analysis that nice. is part of this paper is, hey, these differences between Limhi and Mormon's um, perception of what occurred has some nuances that render Limhi in a certain light, but also affect you know, our, our way we interpret Mormon. Right. Um, and so that, that was kind of the, those key elements of looking at those differences. And of course, the biggest difference is that Limhi doesn't blame his father in his, in his, 
preparatory speech there, right, before right. all the people. Right. Um, and, and so that was kind of a big um, gap yeah. that, that, you know, really made me curious about Limhi and what's happening in these texts and how Mormons representing them. Yeah, that's so cool. So, you know, what's one thing that this makes me think of in terms of method is um, we, I think, maybe as Latter Saints, we've gotten more used to looking at kind of like parallels. Um, so we look at like typology in the scriptures where, you know, one story is being played out, uh, uh, an older sacred story is being played out in a new way in. Um, a later sacred story. So, for instance, the story of Lehi leading his people to a promised land is obviously echoing and sort of reenacting the story of Moses leading his people to a promised land. And Latter-day Saints have become very familiar with this idea of like parallelism in um, uh, chias- in the form of chiasmus, right, where you have you know certain elements in a text are given in one order, A, B, C, D, right? And then they're reversed, given in reverse order, you know, D, C, B, A afterward. Um, and so we, we are sort of attuned to look for parallels or similarities, but something that we maybe are less attuned to is to look for differences. And so differences can be as revealing or sometimes more revealing than similarities, right? And so that's, uh, I think, a very astute kind of perspective to look at, okay, well, the same events are being narrated in Limhi's sermon about his people's history and then uh, being narrated by Mormon later, but the way that they're narrating them, <laughs> where, where they're particularly maybe where they're placing responsibility for the people's uh, iniquity and downfall is that they're not doing it the same way. They're, they're pinning the blame on different people. Um, so what it, uh, do you want to tell us more about that, um, sort of how how Limhi and Mormon in their narratives are assigning uh, responsibility? Yeah, yeah, there's, um, as, as you know, we pull on that thread of these differences between Limhi's uh, recollection of events versus Mormon's abridgment, um, we find very clear um, that Limhi uh, blames the people, and he, and he seems to also blame his grandfather, Zena, for bringing the people close to the Lamanites, right, within grasp. And um, he's, his um, recollection of Abinadi and why he was killed um, mm-hmm. is in line with his father's um, trumped-up charges against Abinadi. Um, and, and that's another key area where Mormon... Mormon's representation of those past events and Limhi's sermon differ is that Mormon shows very clearly that Noah and the people were not mad at Abinadi for how for his doctrine about Christ as represented in the in the official trumped up charges. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were they were angry at Abinadi simply because he was calling them to repentance. Right? Mm-hmm. It was a, a the reaction of pride to yeah. being called out, right, for being wicked. And, you know, you see that really clearly at the end when Noah's like, hey, um, we've, we've got this charge against you, but I'll drop it if you just take back the things you said about me and my people. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's clearly uh, the doctrinal issue wasn't what made Noah angry, but that's how Limhi represents it. You know, yeah. Abinadi was killed because um, Abinadi talked about God coming down to earth, you know, uh, having a body being this Christ figure. And, um, and this seems to all stem from this inability um, uh, of Lim, for Limhi to see his father's weaknesses. And um, and it manifests in, in various decisions, because as I started pulling on that thread, I noticed that um, all the stories that Mormon included about Limhi, save his um, acceptance of the gospel, which was a really important point to me as, um, as a Limhi-like person, <laughs> um, Mormon's representation of Limhi and his decision-making is that Limhi made terrible decisions very frequently in this part of the narrative where he's jumping to, like, the most wrong decision possible in, yeah. in cases where he's, you know, uh, the group of people that were sent by the main body of Nephites to look for this this colony, um, you know, Limhi sees them, assumes that they're the enemy when they are, you know, allies. And then he does the sep- a separate, you know, flip when um, the Lamanites... Uh, there's some daughters that go missing, and they assume that it's from the Zenith people, uh, the Zenithites, and so they they uh, mount an you know uh, uh, an incursion on the you know they attack the Nephites there, and um, somehow miraculously Limhi sees this coming. They prepare and they they fend off the attack. Uh, the king's spared, and they, he talks to the king and assumes the king is right and right. Is, go- is ready to just find whoever did it and, and have judgment happen. Um, as a, so in this case, he's, he's seeing a foe as a friend. Mm-hmm. And, and so he does these sorts of decisions that, that um, imperil his people at times. Fortunately, he has Gideon and others there to help him make uh, better decisions. But um, there's this characterization that occurs for Limhi throughout these events that show that he's well-meaning, but he's, he's really struggling to make good decisions. Um, but one thing that goes along with that whole um, um, characterization of Limhi is that unlike Noah, um, his father, Limhi was able to accept correction. Hmm. And that, oh. that's what leads him to being able to re- receive the gospel and lead his people to the gospel in the end. And so for me, a lot of this uh, narrative, at least from this thread, um, gives me a lot of hope as someone who, who is well-meaning, but I often struggle making good decisions. And I, you know, I mess up here, I mess up there. Um, but like Limhi, if I accept correction and I repent, then there's salvation that's possible for me too. Yeah. And I really enjoyed learning more about Limhi in this, yeah. you know, in this thread of analysis. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah. So, um, I mean, one thing I've noticed over time with regard to how we might look at characters in the scriptures, is that we tend, maybe particularly within the Book of Mormon, more so than the Bible, we tend to maybe look at the Book of Mormon as a kind of book of heroes, 
Uh, we focus on the people who seem like they're the coolest, right? The Captain Morona, yeah. right? Like the, if, if everyone were like him, the very foundations of hell would be shaken forever and like Nephi and so on. But um, the, there are actually great complexities to the characters in the narrative. And, and I think this is all the more obvious in the Bible. Like basically like the only truly like the only <laughs> persons who are portrayed as fully good in the Bible would be Christ and God, the Father, right? But um, uh, I think it's, uh, in the Book of Mormon, there is kind of more of a heroic ideal, so to identify maybe characters who are very flawed, but they're flawed like us, uh, gives us a real uh, kind of window onto divine grace and how that can operate in our lives. So these these people don't need to be perfect in order to connect with us. In fact, it's better that they're not <laughs> perfect because we're not perfect. And so, you know, uh, yeah, it's, you know, also what you said reminded me of something actually from psychology. Um, so there's an idea uh, in the last couple decades in psychological research of what's called a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. So in the fixed mindset, oh. people believe that their abilities are just sort of innate. They're there from birth. Uh, and whereas in a growth mindset, they believe that everything that anyone knows how to do, they learned how to do. It's all learned behavior. And so people with a fixed mindset, they will tend to reject being, they can't handle being wrong because being wrong, they think reflects on them as a person. So, so uh they can't be can't stand to be wrong because they think it's a judgment on them personally, and not on their behavior. Whereas someone with a growth mindset is like, oh, okay, well, they can take criticism in a way where they see that the criticism is about their behavior, and their behavior is something they can change. Right. And so here you've got you've laid out this uh, shown that um, you know there's this kind of official royal Nephite narrative here under King Noah's. Um, dynasty that Abin the prophet Abinadi was executed for blasphemy, uh, whereas what's actually the case you're showing is he's executed, or, or Mormon is showing, he's ex um, the problem is not blasphemy on Abinadi's part, it's ego on King Noah's part. And so it's not that Abinadi has made an offense toward God, it's that he has offended Noah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and and all the different ways that Mormon um, shows us this, you know, uh, is is so interesting. Like even the um, the the reader position that that Mormon gives us as a reader, right? So I I feel that Mormon is very much aware of a, of a, this idea of an audience, you know, mm. um, almost. Uh, in a, in a modern sense, right? He, he's aware that he is giving us drama, right? Mm. Um, and it's, it's so neat to, uh, to read Mormon and, and the, and the other authors of the Book of Mormon because of that. And one of the ways he shows that is that, um, there are times where he gives us more information than the cast of the characters. So then we can see them making a bad decision or, you know, making a good decision. And, uh, like in the, in the case of the abducted Lamanite, uh, daughters, right? Mormon gives us the information of what, of what happened. And so then we can see, um, 
all the different conclusions that that you know Gideon versus Limhi versus the the king of the, the Lamanites, um, all of their assessments, and we can judge them, right? And then one of the things that he does that I think is such a neat narrative strategy as far as uh, 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 rhetor- rhetorical tools go is he he makes the reader and a group within the Book of Mormon have the same uh, position, right? We're learning knowledge about what's going on at the same time in the same way. And uh, that's Ammon's group. So the Ammon is the leader of a group uh, from the main body of the Nephites that was sent to go find the Xenophyte colony and um, he gets there and uh, meets Limhi, um, and after they clear up who he really is, um, Ammon is allowed to read the records. And so he reads the records, and we're reading the records. So once, uh, so that happens in chapter eight, where he's given the records of the people from, by Limhi to read. Right. Then that's when. Mormon switches to us to start from the beginning, right? So then we get Zenophyte's first-person narrative, uh, Zenith's first-person narrative, and then Mormon abridges the events after that. And then it, at one point, we catch up. So then Ammon, as a reader, and us as a reader, um, we come back to that same point where Mormon started us at, right? That point where Ammon and his people make it to the Zenophyte colony, and then Mormon does this, this ingenious uh, uh, rhetorical technique where he gives us the reaction of Ammon and his group as readers to the narrative we've both just read. Hmm. And it, to me, that was so cool to see Mormon, um, you know, uh, curating uh, this experience, not just uh, an account of something that occurred, but, it, you know, a, an experience, right? This is what happened. Um, this is what I want. Oh. Did we just lose? Look, looks like we just lost Nathan. Oh, we'll okay. uh, um, certainly, uh, I'm sure he'll call us back in. He's uh, <laughs> not sure exactly where he is. He told me he oh. was calling from overseas. Oh. And okay. uh, we were going to be. Uh, kind of uh, hoping for the best, oh. you know, but about whether or not he's going to be able to connect with us this evening. Oh. But uh, we'll, we'll, we'll hope he, he, he gets back on. But you this, know, this will be like the lost pages of our discussion. R- right. right. Well, it, you know, we'll have to, it, it, it'll be anybody's guess what it is we would have talked about. <laughs> uh, you know, no, I can reconstruct it. Right. Well, certainly <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll publish a best-selling book about it, I'm sure. Uh, you know, one of the things, Don, to me that's, that strikes me about Nathan's analysis here is, there, there he is right now, let me let, let him really in, in right now. Nathan, you back with us? Yes, sorry. That, that's all <laughs> I right. Don't know, I don't know what I did. But well, I, I was just mentioning we're, we're grateful to have you here. I understand you're, uh, you're calling from overseas right now, is that right? Yeah, we, yeah. We, we were just commenting on how this so was the, uh, the last 116 seconds of our podcast. I'm sorry? Yeah, the last sorry. 16 seconds of our podcast. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Don's going to write a book about it. Uh, so, Nathan, where are you calling from? Uh, so, I'm, I'm here in India. In India. Oh. Wow. Well, um, we'd... Uh, 
be fascinated to hear hear about what you're doing there. But uh, why don't we why don't we wrap up the discussion about uh, your your article? Uh, what, one of the things I was just telling Don is that uh, I just am fascinated with the depth uh, into which you have delved with respect to this uh, relatively small. Um, uh, uh, portion of the you know Book of Mormon, this this narrative event, and there's there's such richness in uh, in in this uh, small episode. Uh, but then the other thing is is that there's consistency as well. There are a lot of you know flashbacks. It's it's kind of a complicated section of the Book of Mormon when we you know if you if you're trying to move forward chronologically, uh, it's 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 pretty confusing really if you try to you know try to sort it out. But then once you do, you know you look really closely, and and it works. And, and not only does it work, uh, you know, from a, uh, you know, the, the, just chronologically, if we, if we map it out, but the narrative structure is consistent. Uh, you know, the narrative voices are distinct, but, uh, but consistent. And I, I like how you've been able to tease out various perspectives as you've taken a close look at the narrative structure. Well, yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, and I, I agree that there's a richness, and there's so many levels of, of understanding possible within the, those Zenophyte narratives that Mormon really took a lot of time uh, to craft those for us and to help us to see so much more than, than what's available on just a superficial reading. And, and this spreads across the the Book of Mormon as a whole, and it it spreads across individual books within the Book of Mormon. So, of course, you know, Mormon using King Noah here to give us a message about how a wicked ruler, right, a wicked king, how much they can lead the people astray, of course, fits into the, that larger theme in the Book of Mosiah itself, where, you know, the the dynasty, the kingship itself ends at the Book of Mosiah, because Mosiah the second is telling his people, well, you know, sure, a good king is great for you, like, you know, King Benjamin had been, but a wicked king, like, leads everybody astray because they have disproportional power, so people are not responsible for themselves. And so the way that he handles the narrative of Noah here contributes to this larger theme of the book of Mosiah that ends up telling us why they get rid of kingship and why kingship is not as good as uh, a, a wider form of government that has more representative elements in it. For sure, yeah. And, and what a, um, a tribute to Mosiah II for realizing that and then giving up that kind of power. Uh, that's very rare in, in human history in general, right. is a king stepping down, right? Someone who could have had and continued a dynasty and said, no, I want to do what's best for the people instead. Right. Like, so so powerful. And then, of course, as, as you guys all know, the, that becomes a major issue socially for the Nephites ever after, right? Where there's always a group trying to reinstall kings. Well, Nathan, we sure appreciate your contributions to the Interpreter Foundation and these, these great articles. Do you have anything else you're working on right now? Uh, yeah, yeah, I have a few other uh, 
papers that I'm working on. Um, I'm leveraging the uh, patience of uh, Godfrey Ellis <laughs> currently <laughs> as because it takes me forever to write and rewrite these papers. But yeah, I have uh, I have a few ones on the on the burner that hopefully will 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 make their way out uh, into publication. Well, keep up the good work. We appreciate your contributions. Appreciate you getting up early in the morning to be on with yeah. us this evening on uh, the Interpreter Foundation radio show. Thank you. It was an honor. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you.